In this weekend's episode, three segments from this past week's Washington Journal. First, with folks at home preparing to file their taxes, we speak with IRS National Taxpayer Advocate Erin Collins about her role and advice for taxpayers. Then a conversation with Republican Glenn Thompson of Pennsylvania and Democrat Suzanne Bonamici of Oregon, two members of Congress who are working across the aisle to promote career and technical education in the U.S. Plus, Gerard Anderson, a health policy expert at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, discusses rising prescription drug costs. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team, along with my colleague, Nate. Join us as we celebrate C-SPAN's 45th anniversary and our inaugural Founders Day campaign. It all started as a bold experiment on March 19, 1979, when C-SPAN first brought coverage of the House of Representatives into living rooms across America. Let's celebrate C-SPAN's visionary founders who believed in offering unfiltered access to the inner workings of our political process. From Congress to the White House to the courts and beyond, C-SPAN has documented history unfolding without commentary or spin for over four decades. Help us keep it going. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to give a gift in celebration of C-SPAN's Founders Day. Your donation honors the original vision of C-SPAN's founders and helps to advance our mission for years to come. Make your donation today at cspan.org slash donate. Thank you. Now, IRS National Taxpayer Advocate Erin Collins speaks about her role and what taxpayers should expect as they get ready to file their taxes. Ms. Collins, remind viewers what the role of the National Taxpayer Advocate is and what your office's relationship is with the IRS. Sure, and first of all, good morning, John. Nice to see you. Um, So the office that I lead, the Taxpayer Advocate Service, and the position that I have, the National Taxpayer Advocate, were created by Congress about 25 or so years ago. And it was the intent is to really help taxpayers those folks who are having challenges with the IRS. So we kind of refer to ourselves as sort of the safety net when all else fails, that our office is there to help taxpayers with uh, their problems one-on-one. But also, Congress also gave us the authority to um, provide recommendations for the IRS with respect to problems with uh, service or problems with administration or really focus on protecting the taxpayer rights. So we have the ability by the statute to provide administrative recommendations, and we also have the ability, which is very unique, to provide legislative recommendations. So we can, um, in our annual report to Congress that we uh, publish basically in early January, uh, we provide recommendations to basically improve administration uh, to make it easier to file your taxes. A line from that most recent report to Congress, the year 2023 was one of extraordinary transition for the IRS and therefore for taxpayers. Despair, though, has turned to cautious optimism. Why do you have cautious optimism? So if, you know, if we all recall, and I think a lot of us try and put COVID and the pandemic behind us, but during those three, four years, um, IRS was also struggling. Like everyone else at the beginning of 2020, uh, when COVID was spiking, the IRS did shut down its facilities. And as a result, uh, the returns were piling up and it took the IRS literally two to three years to get out of the challenges that COVID caused uh, with respect to the workload. So last year, the IRS closed out the year almost even, so to speak, with respect to the returns that had been filed. So the paper as well as the electronic returns were processed, payments were made, but they still have areas that they need to improve. Uh, Telephone service, uh, at a period of time, I think it was in the 2021, 
only 11% of the calls were being answered by the IRS because that's how much you know taxpayers were calling uh, more often, uh, three times as much as in previous years, and it was a real struggle for taxpayers as well as IRS folks. What we're looking at currently, um, and knock on wood, and that this filing season will be a little bit more smooth. Uh, we are seeing that uh, electronic returns that are being filed are being paid fairly promptly. Uh, so things are looking good. So I have my fingers crossed that things continue to go that way throughout the filing season. A place where you note in your report that you have continued concerns, though, is the IRS assisting victims of identity theft. Explain. Yeah, and it's used the word victims. Um, these are folks that have had their identity stolen. Uh, someone has come in and pretended, for example, they file a return and say that they're Aaron Collins in order to get my refund. Um, when I finally file my return, I realize someone has already come into the IRS and claimed my tax return. So the challenge the IRS had was in order to sort of get caught up, and I refer to it sort of the backlog or the inventory of tax returns, what the IRS was doing was sort of borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. They were moving their resources around to prioritize the filing of tax returns. And as a result, they moved people that were in that unit that helped those folks that were victims of identity theft, and they moved them onto the telephones to do other work. And as a result, um, what we saw was those returns took about an average of 19 months in order for those folks to be able to properly identify themselves and in order to get those refunds, which I think we all agree is just not a reasonable period of time. So we are currently working with the IRS. Uh, they are now well aware of the issue and um, they are trying to see if we can move the resources back to that division so that we can clear up the backlog and then fix it on a go forward basis. Saying on that report to Congress, what's an employee retention credit? So the employee retention credit came about through the CARES Act back in uh, 2020. And then Congress really wanted to help uh, businesses in need. So you think about a small business, a restaurant, for example. Um, with COVID, a lot of the restaurants were not receiving, the customers were not coming in. So what Congress wanted the restaurants to do in that situation or small businesses or businesses is to be able to keep their employees on roll. So in order to have them still receive a paycheck, even though the business wasn't receiving the same amount of customers coming in so that it was sort of a win-win. The business was able to stay afloat. Employees were able to receive a salary. And so Congress created the employee retention credit as a way to compensate and to provide those businesses that additional relief. And one more from the taxpayer perspective, the document upload tool, DUT, what is that? So the document upload tool was actually something that uh, the IRS IT folks came about. Um, and, and specifically, I'll use my office as an example. Um, we were struggling uh, getting documents into the IRS. Mail was slow, uh, things were getting delayed. And so we had talked to our IT folks and said, can you come up with sort of a portal, for lack of a better word, so that taxpayers could upload it directly from their phone? Um, so if we were trying to help a taxpayer, let's say with respect to um, an earned income tax credit, where they were trying to establish that they, uh, their child lived with them or the school they went to, and we wanted them to upload documents, they could take a picture from their mobile phone and upload it through this tool, the document upload tool, and get it directly to our case advocates. What the IRS has done, which I think is a good thing, um, is they've now taken that tool and applied it across the board. The challenge is the tool wasn't originally designed to take the volume of everything that comes into the IRS from paper. 
So the struggle the IRS is having now is the front end of the tool works great. People can upload the information. The IRS now has to create a sort of the back end processing. So when the tool comes in or the document comes in through the tool, they can get it out to the respective divisions rather quickly. So right now it's all going to sort of a, a coordinated place. And so now we need to get the tool to be able to send it to the correct unit so that people can work the paper. That was IRS National Taxpayer Advocate Aaron Collins. Next, a discussion with two members of Congress, Republican Glenn Thompson of Pennsylvania and Democrat Suzanne Bonamici of Oregon, co-chairs of the Career and Technical Education Caucus. Congresswoman Bonamici, let's begin with you. What is the aim of this caucus? Well, the aim of the Career and Technical Education Caucus is to raise awareness about how career and technical education classes help students and help the economy. Uh, it's been great to work with Representative Thompson on this bipartisan effort. We have a federal law, the Perkins mm. Career and Technical Education Act, that helps schools across the country. And I know both Representative Thompson and I understand that um, oftentimes these opportunities keep students in school and get them ready for whatever path they take, whether they go directly into the to workforce or to uh, a college or to a trade school. Uh, career and technical education is hands-on learning. Uh, it's great for students um, and it's, it's great for our communities and the economy. Congressman Glenn Thompson, when you think about your district and those across the country, what motivated you to start this, this caucus? Why is there a need? Well, this is about learning to earn. Um, my personal story is uh, <clears throat> when my dad came back uh, from serving in the Navy, uh, he went on to a career in technical education school, became a toll and die maker, um, and, and, and did that successfully. He actually, like many times, uh, he went from being a tool and die maker to using that skill set to developing his own business, um, you know, to be able to do some light manufacturing, repair work, uh, retail, uh, even some wholesale. And so uh, career in technical education is an incredibly important rung on the ladder of opportunity. And I've seen that in my own own personal life, actually, with with my family, it, uh, it uh, my dad was able to provide for my family, and really provide a model that uh, uh, of just how important career and technical education is, uh, and I, and we see that over and over again as we, mm -hmm. you know, hear the stories of individuals who <coughs> maybe they came out of the military, maybe they came right mm -hmm. out of high school, you know, maybe they. Uh, you know, change course with their careers. And, but uh, career and technical education is absolutely one of those in, incredible pathways to success. That is our conversation that we're having with these two members this morning, career and technical education. Congresswoman Bonamici, how would you define that? Well, career and technical education can look like many different uh, opportunities, and I'll give you a couple of examples. It really is, as I mentioned, hands-on learning. I was just at Liberty High School in Hillsboro, Oregon, where they have a sustainable agriculture class, and these students were so engaged in learning. Uh, so when, when they're asked where food comes from, it's not just the grocery mm. store. They were growing corn. Uh, they made uh, uh, tortillas from the corn. Uh, they made salsa from 
tomatoes and onions that they grew. So it was really exciting to see how engaged they were. Over on the coast in uh, the beautiful Northwest uh, Oregon coast uh, in Warrington, uh, Oregon, the high school there has a, a fishery. Uh, and they study sustainable fisheries. So there's just lots of different opportunities. St. Helens High School, for example, has at least seven different career and technical education courses that students can take from auto repair to early childhood education to manufacturing. So this is really a learning opportunity that gives students uh, experience so they can discover whether they're interested in a field or maybe not, or just gaining life skills, but it's really also helping to keep them in schools. And my state of Oregon, has been a leader. In fact, we actually passed an initiative a few years ago to support more career and technical education courses across the state. And one of the big advantages is that it increases graduation rates because it really keeps yeah. students in school and gives them skills that they can use. I was just up at uh, the Oregon Manufacturing Innovation Center uh, in Columbia County, Oregon, with a, a big advanced manufacturing center there. They had 700 high school students there on manufacturing day so they can learn about opportunities so this career and technical education, again, is hands-on learning. Uh, Lincoln High School in Portland has a wonderful culinary program. It's just a very engaging way for students to learn. Yeah, and you know, the, the, the tools of, of career and technical education are so diverse, right? I mean, it's wrenches, uh, it's farm implements, but it's exactly. stethoscopes, it's paintbrushes. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, uh, you know, uh, uh, working in, in uh, you know, in you know, sort of the the new emerging digital industry, uh, computers. Uh, uh, it, there, it's, it's so much. I and in Pennsylvania, it's incredibly important. Well, as well, my home state, one out of every five degrees or certificates awarded in Pennsylvania is comes from a career and technical education school. So it's playing a, a, a an even larger role, and I think that will continue to improve. I. Uh, I'd like to thank some of our advocacy that, that we do as a career and technical education caucus uh, contributes to that. We've uh, certainly, we've, we've introduced just uh, this past uh, session, so far nine pieces of legislation, one that we'll introduce today that <coughs> support career and technical education. And I'm proud to say over the past, uh, well, well more than a decade, despite the fact that we've had difficult, challenging fiscal times, um, yeah, career and technical education is something that this caucus has led in, in really achieving increased investment in it because the return on investment with career and technical education is about jobs, it's about uh, economic success, um, and it's about opportunity. And keeping students in school, it really Absolutely. makes a difference. And I've had teachers and administrators say thank you to the Perkins Act because it's helping us get the equipment we need. That was Republican Congressman Glenn Thompson of Pennsylvania and Democratic Congresswoman Suzanne Bonamici of Oregon, co-chairs of the Career and Technical Education Caucus. Next, a discussion on what's behind rising prescription drug costs in the United States. Joining us this morning is Gerard Anderson. He's at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, a professor there, here to talk about the rising cost of prescription drugs. So how much have prescription drug costs gone up in recent years? They've gone up about three to four times faster than inflation, and they just keep rising, and we don't seem to have any way to slow it down. Why do they keep rising? 
Well, there's a number of reasons, but essentially um, the brand name drugs, which is the ones that you hear about all the time, represent about 80% of the spending, and they have a patent and they have market exclusivity. So they essentially have a government-run monopoly, so they can charge whatever they want. And if a for-profit company can charge whatever they want, they will charge whatever they want, and they do. Also, there's a whole group of people that are trying to buy drugs, um, and everybody has a different system. So unlike other countries which have one system to buy drugs, we have a myriad of systems. So Medicare has a system, Medicaid has a different system, private insurers have many different systems, there's many PBMs that are buying it, so it's very complicated uh, for somebody to try to buy drugs. You just threw in a, wa a Washington alphabet soup. Yes. PBM, explain. Uh, pharmacy benefit managers, they're the ones that buy drugs on your behalf. They're the ones who establish the formularies that um, are used to actually ma to buy drugs for you if you have Medicare, if you have Medicaid, if you have private insurance. And what role are they playing in the rising cost? Well, they make it harder for you to pay for the drugs. And this is gonna get a little wonky, but I'll try to do it, make it simple. So the, the PBMs, the, the pharmacy benefit managers, want to show the Medicare program, they wanna show the private insurance that they're doing a good job. And so they say, we're gonna give you a big discount over what the list price is. Okay, so the list price is the price that the pharmacy, the, uh, the uh, drug company sets, and then the PBM gets a much bigger discount on that. But the larger the list price, the greater the discount appears to be. So each time the drug company raises its list price, you, the consumer, pay a higher price because your cost sharing, your amount that you have to pay when you go to the pharmacy is dependent on the list price. And so every time the drug company raises the list price, you end up paying more. And there are some drugs where you actually pay more than the, the pharmacy gets for the drug because the way the, the cost sharing works. Explain that a little bit more. So they are trying to make up what they're losing with the PBMs? No, okay. no, they are trying to show off to the PBMs okay. that essentially um, that they raised the price and therefore everybody else um, is going to get, a, um, uh, they, they, the PBM, are getting a deal. So if you look at what you get from uh, the PBM or from your insurer, they say, the list price is here and you paid only this. And you figure, hey, I got a great deal. The problem is the list prices determines what you actually paid. Mm. So what is Congress doing about, or thinking about doing, about these middlemen? So the middlemen, there's a number of different kinds of middlemen, PBMs, or pharmacy benefit managers are one, group purchasing organizations are another, um, and they are trying to uh, rein in those costs. And really the most important thing is so that they don't keep raising the list price, the price that determines what you or I have to pay. How will they do that? Well, essentially they're gonna say to them something like, and it's not clear exactly how it'll work in the final bill, but they're gonna say something like, you can't, take all these discounts, you have to have a price, not 
And so there's no incentive for the drug companies to raise their list prices. You said that in other countries, there's one system. Correct. Explain the system and how it's different. So it, it varies a little bit from country to country. But uh, what happens is the government says, we are willing to pay a certain amount of money for a drug. The drug company then says, well, do I want to sell it for that price or not? And if they're willing to sell it for that price, then everybody in that country gets it. If, if they're not willing to sell it for the price, sometimes that drug is not available in that country. In almost every case, the drug is available because the marginal cost of manufacturing a drug is really, really small. And so you're going to make money even though in the United States a drug costs $10,000. It only probably costs a few hundred dollars to actually manufacture. So you can sell it in France for $1,000 and still make a lot of money. When that happens, what happens to the cost of that same drug in the United States? And they say to France, okay, fine, we'll sell it for a thousand here. Now what happens to the price in the United States? Anything? Probably not much, um, because in every country, the people from Pfizer or Merck or whatever are trying to maximize the amount of money. If you were the representative for Pfizer and you uh, said to your CEO, I made, well, you made so much money in the United States that we wouldn't actually, um, we don't need to make so much money in France. I think you'd get fired. And so, you know, you basically have to manufacture as much, you sell as much as you can for each, for each drug in each country. So each, each country is doing, is trying to, uh, the, the company is trying to maximize its profit in every single country. Is the discrepancy as large as what you just said, that a drug can cost 10000 in the United States and $1,000 in France? So we did a paper in a journal called Health Affairs. The average amount is about four times, but there are some drugs that are 100 times more expensive in the United States. There are some drugs that are only about 20% more expensive. So, you know, it varies from drug to drug. You said there is doesn't appear to be a way of slowing down the rise of prescription drugs. Why not? Well, because everybody is doing their own thing. So, you know, Medicare is doing one thing. Medicaid is doing something separate. Uh, private insurance is doing a third thing. And they all, you know, the drug companies know that. And the drug companies, as I mentioned earlier, these patents. So they are able to charge whatever they want to charge. That was Gerard Anderson from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website, cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern.